Well, here in Acts 3 and 4, we have the early church really getting going. And I, I want to just pay a little bit of attention to, to the details of some of these, these things that we've read here in, in Acts 3 and 4. Let's start with Peter, Peter's healing of, of the lame man. Uh, chapter 3, verse 6 there, we just read, uh, this, this guy is a, a beggar, he's uh, opportunistically, I would say, trying to, uh, to, to get some money, he's sees Peter and John going into the temple and he asks for charity, for an alms, verse 3. And uh, Peter says, verse 6, I don't have any silver and gold. Well, that's a, uh, that's a pretty amazing thing to say. He didn't even have any, uh, any coppers, as it were, to, uh, to, to throw to this poor man. And he says, but what I have I will give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And when he's quizzed about this later, he says in verse 16, his name, the name of Jesus, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. Yes, the faith which is by him, or in him, in Christ, has given him, has given this man, this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Now, was this man a believer? Did he believe in Jesus? No, he's just lying there and he says, hey man, spare a few, uh, you know, spare us your small change, and Peter heals him, and then he says, this was done in the name of Jesus, by faith in his name. This has made this man strong. But whose faith? Peter's faith, I think the answer is, and that's why they, they basically hold Peter as responsible for this. So then, that uh, really is the power of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? To be able to do miracles like that, and that's my my big problem with all the faith healing and the claims of Pentecostalism today that uh, if you've got these gifts well then you can say to the lame get up and walk and yet they excuse their inability to do that by saying ah oh, the guy didn't believe enough he didn't believe strongly enough well <laughs> it's not a case of that man's belief or not it's you who should have the power to do that but my point is again uh, just looking at a, at a sort of bigger, bigger scale, bigger level it was by Peter's faith that that man was cured. And this opens up uh, quite a, a theme, which I think that is, of people being cured, healed, forgiven even, because of the faith of a third party. For me, the classic one is in Mark 2 verse 5, where when Jesus saw the faith of the friends, he said to the sick man, your sins are forgiven you. So a person was forgiven and healed there in Mark 2, this is the incident when they, they break up the roof and let the uh, paralyzed man down um, the man was forgiven and healed because of the faith of his friends when Jesus saw the faith of the friends he said that and here I think Peter may have learnt that lesson because he realizes that because of his faith in Jesus, this sick man, this lame man, can now walk. Now, of course there are limits, I suppose, invisible limits from our point of view, uh, as to God's action uh, for others, in the sense that God is not going to drag people into his kingdom, ultimately, who do not want to be there. But it is also true that within some limits, our prayers for others and our faith for others can have huge impact upon them. 
In other words, we are not just sit down in this life with a relationship with God and Jesus and a Bible in front of us and uh, the option to, to pray to God. There is another, there, there's another element, there's another dimension there, and that is the faith of others for you. I mean, Job prayed for his friends and they were forgiven. Now, why in all these cases is it not that the, uh, let's say, the man in Mark 2 prayed for forgiveness, repented, and he was healed, and focused his faith on Jesus, etc.? But there was another element. And at the end of James 5, you have another uh, classic statement of this, that you can save a sinner from his ways. You can convert somebody, and thereby you save them. And in the context there in James 5, he's saying that... He, if someone is sick within the church, then pray for him. And if he's forgiven sins, they shall be. If he's uh, committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Now you can understand why in every letter of Paul's he's on and on about I'm praying for you all the time. He says this to everybody he writes to. This is why prayer for others becomes so major and so significant. Because we really can affect the eternal destiny of other people. Don't forget that Peter is doing all these great works and what he's done in chapter 2, the greatest open-air evangelism, I would say, of all time ever, converting thousands of people just because you stood up and gave a speech to them and they, they cut to the, to the heart and say, sure, what have we got to do? Repent and be baptized. Right on, you're on. And uh, somehow, how he worked it all out, I don't know, but um, you know, practically immersing that huge number of people, but they did it. Um, this man who was chosen by God to do that, that is Peter, and to do these great miracles here, had just very recently, you know, six weeks ago or less, had denied Jesus and had dishonored him and uh, effectively did the same as what Judas did. And yet, because he repented, he was the one whom God chose to use. Now, he, all the time, as we said when we talked about Acts 2, and it's the same really in these chapters, all the time, Peter's words are consciously and unconsciously, I think, alluding back to his own experience of uh, the Lord's forgiveness and his own conversion, because Jesus had said, when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. And his brethren were the Jews. And he was given this ministry to the Jews of converting the Jews, strengthening the Jews, uh, as it were, on the basis of his own conversion. Feed my sheep. You know, when Jesus meets Peter again by a charcoal fire, just the type of fire that he denied Jesus by three times. Jesus undoes the denials by three times asking him, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I do. And he's told, well, go and feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And his lambs and his sheep from the John 10 parable were Israel in the first context. And so Peter's ministry to people, to the Jewish people, was based around his own experience of conversion and, and his own personal repentance. And so it is with us that this is how you will convert people. And I do submit that bringing others to Jesus is one of the, one of, not the only, but, but is one of the, the reasons why we have been called. 
It's not just that we might enjoy eternal life. It's so that we might be workers in the vineyard. And how do we do that effectively? We do it on the basis of our own repentance and experience of God's grace. So, in Acts 3.19, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. I wonder if the emphasis should be on the you. You therefore repent, and be converted. Like I have done. As you know, Peter's saying, you all know, that, that I denied the Lord, and everybody in Jerusalem knew that, and it was, you know, in the gossip rags all over the place, what I had done. But when I was converted... I was given the, I've been given this uh, ministry to strengthen and convert my brethren, just like David did, really, uh, when he was forgiven after Bathsheba. His Psalms 32 and 51 are all about preaching and appealing to other people. So then he's telling them, look, um, you have basically, you were the ones who uh, denied your Lord. Uh, you're the ones, you are the crowd, you are the people who in the end gave power to the, the guys who actually did the deed. You need to repent of that. And of course, Peter himself had denied the Lord as, as they had done. When he says there in verse 19, that your sins may be blotted out, he's actually quoting the words of Psalm 51 verse 1, which is about David. Again, in the same context of having sinned and felt God's forgiveness and now going out to persuade others of the very same grace that he himself has been shown. Now there in Psalm 51 verse 1, <clears throat> Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your grace, according to the multitude of your tender mercy, blot out my transgressions. And that bit, blot out my transgressions, that's what Peter's uh, basically quoting here when he says, repent that your sins, your transgressions may be blotted out. So he's saying you are all in the position of David when he sinned with Bathsheba. There was no sacrifice to make for what you have done. You can only throw yourself upon God's grace. Interestingly, Paul in, in Romans does the same. He basically says that David's sin with Bathsheba is the sin of every one of us. In, in, in the sense that uh, we are justified by purely by grace because there are no works that we can do. So in Romans 4 verse 5, to him that works not but believes on him that justifies the ungodly his faith is counted for righteousness, even as David also describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now, that's David in a kind of soliloquy in the Psalms there, reflecting upon his own life. Blessed is the man, me. And Paul slightly changes the quotation when he says blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. David actually says blessed is the man whose iniquity is, is forgiven. Talking about himself. But Paul is saying we are all in that position. We are all murderers and adulterers and the rest of it. That is every single one of us and we are saved by grace and not by our works. And so 
Peter here, when he says, Repent so that your sins may be blotted out, quoting Psalm 51 verse 1, he's doing the same. He's putting all of us, all his audience, and every one of us, in the position of David, saying, Cast yourself upon God's grace. Now we wonder, or some people wonder, why they do not bring people to Christ, why they don't convert people, why it never works out for me. Why in this uh, business of preaching does it seem that, you know, some guys get all the luck kind of thing? And all I can say is that if you are appealing and pleading to, with another person to accept God's grace, not a, a set of theology, not a set of nice, interesting ideas, but appealing right to the, the, the core of a person's conscience and offering them grace... I believe you will find takers. You will not necessarily find takers for an intricate theological position. That's all to do with uh, trashing how all the other guys have got it wrong, which they have. They've got it wrong. Trinity and the devil falling off the 99th floor in the Garden of Eden, all this kind of stuff, all this kind of nonsense. Sure, all that's wrong. But there will not be that sense of urgency of conviction if we are simply presenting people with a set of theology. It is this urgent personal appeal to the access to forgiveness and grace that we can really have. And I think that's why here in these chapters in Acts, Luke repeatedly use a, uses a word, which I think was a favorite Greek word for him, that's translated things like forthwith or immediately, straight away. Um, Chapter 3, verse 7, immediately the man received strength. Um, chapter 5, uh, verse 10, uh, and I, I got a whole list of them here, 9, 18, 12, 23, 13, 11, 16, 26, 33, uh, time and again. And I think the idea that we're getting is of a very fast-moving growth. And that speed of movement was because there was an urgency in the message. There was an urgency in the preacher that was appealing to the urgency that actually in their conscience, somewhere somewhere locked away, deep inside, that dis-ease with oneself, which I think that is in most, if not every, human being. That's why the baptisms were so quick. There was not, you know, six months, a year instruction in a, in a bunch of theology. It was an appeal directly to the heart and presenting people with their urgent need. Now in verse 17 Peter says something very generous. He says, Now brethren, I know that through ignorance you did it as also did your rulers, that is crucifying Jesus. Notice how he calls them brethren. Well, when you are converted, Peter, strengthen your brethren. That's why he calls them brethren, I, I suggest. And he says, I know that you crucified Jesus through ignorance, but you've got to repent of it and be converted, like I also effectively crucified Jesus in that I also denied him, as you all know. Now, he says that... Um, they did this in ignorance. Well, this is a bit of an expositional uh, conundrum because it wasn't in ignorance because Jesus says several times in John, you know me and you know from whence or from whom I am. You know that I'm the Son of God. And in the parable, 
of the wicked husbandman, he, he says, he puts in their mouth the words, this is the heir, come let us kill him. There was a recognition by them on one level. In fact, you could argue that's exactly why they killed him, because he was the heir. It was exactly because they perceived him to be the son of God that that's why they killed him. And yet Jesus says, Father, forgive them on the cross, for they know not what they do. Well, what's the resolution? I've come up over the years with various suggestions, but the one that I rather like at the moment is quite simply that this is the Lord Jesus being generous-spirited when he said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He had earlier said they knew, knew exactly and precisely what they were doing. This is the heir, come let us kill him. And why he built that into that parable and put those words in their mouths would be a, a mystery if in fact they did not know who he was. <clears throat> and yet, you know, you did this in ignorance, Peter says. And I think he's, he had been, I think, from First Peter 5.1 when he says, I was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He had been at the cross. And I think that must have blown his mind when he heard those last words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was probably thinking, but they do know exactly what they are doing. They are killing their saviour. They're killing Israel's Messiah. Israel are murdering their own Messiah and saviour. And that, of course, was the tragedy of it all. But it was not done in that sense in ignorance. And yet Jesus was very generous-spirited. And that's... Uh, a great example for us uh, to be generous spirited you see it all through the, the Bible really and particularly I think in the record of the death and resurrection of Jesus, two things come to mind the disciples were sleeping for sorrow when I'm sorrowful I can't get to sleep but the record kindly says well they were sleeping because you know they were so sad uh, I do not see the connection between sleepiness and uh, sorrow I don't quite see that, but it's very positively put. And also, Jesus upbraids them after the resurrection. Why didn't you believe? You fools and slow of heart. And yet they believe not, the inspired comment is, they believe not for joy. Since when has lack of faith in the clear words of Jesus, the clear predictions of Jesus of resurrection, since when is that excusable by saying, oh, the, well, the bloke was just so happy about it, that's why he didn't believe it? I, I think not. At least I do not see the connection there. Maybe there is, and we can talk about that afterwards, but uh, I think that's just the generous spirit of God, uh, which you see all the time. I mean, the whole way he counts us as righteous when we're not. Uh, that's generous spirited if you like so I suggest that Peter had heard those generous spirited words from Jesus from the cross Father forgive them for they know not what they do and he thought about that and now he comes out with it and says look guys I know that through ignorance you did this so repent therefore and be converted that generosity of spirit which we see in all the, the words and actions of Jesus that and is what we're faced with really in the bread and wine and it is that which is our salvation and it must be reflected in our attitude to others one final point from 25 and 26 of Acts 3 he talks about the promises to Abraham and uh, in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed unto you first God having raised up his son Jesus the, uh, the seed of Abraham sent him to bless you 
in, and now he defines the blessing, in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. The blessing was, or the promise rather, was of eternal life in God's kingdom on earth. But the thoughtful Jew over the generations must have thought, well, if I'm going to live forever and I'm a sinner and sin brings death, then that means I must also be forgiven. And the idea of blessing and forgiveness, those ideas run together very often in the scriptures. So then the blessing that was part of the promises to Abraham, the new covenant, was in being turned away from our iniquities. Turned away doesn't just mean that we will be forgiven. The same word is oddly enough used in Matthew 26 verse 52 when Jesus tells Peter, put up again your sword. Don't smite with the sword. Put up your sword. Turn away your sword. And I think that, as usual, Peter is alluding to his own experiences when he preaches. So he's saying, look, Jesus saved me from sin by telling me to put my sword away, by turning away my sword, telling me to put up my sword. Um, and that is part of the blessing, he's saying. Not just eternal life on earth, not just forgiveness, but also actually the power to not sin. In Hebrews, the writer quotes from Jeremiah 31 about the New Covenant. And the New Covenant is the promises made to Abraham, uh, as we know from Galatians and Romans. He quotes uh, from Jeremiah 31 about the New Covenant, where God is basically saying to Israel, look, I gave you the Old Covenant set of laws, and you couldn't just handle it. You just kept breaking it and disobeying it. So look, I give you a New Covenant, and I will write my law in your hearts. I will do something to the human mind for those who are within that new covenant and yet that new covenant is we're told in Hebrews that is the covenant that we are in and it's the covenant that was made with Abraham so what's the equivalent in terms of what was said to Abraham of I will write my law in their hearts it is quite simply described there in, uh, in less developed less specific language as blessing that blessing was the forgiveness of sin, the turning away of people from sin and bringing Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews into play. God's word, God's law being put within the human mind. This is what is potentially available to us, to you and me who have been baptized into Jesus, who have become part of the seed of Abraham, and therefore these blessings are true for us. And of course that was all true because of the death of Jesus. That was what confirmed that covenant. And so when we take now the cup of the New Testament, of the New Covenant, in his blood, we are celebrating the fact that this is really and truly the position, the grace, in which we stand.